You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. For several weeks, we've been tracking through the first few chapters of the book of Acts. Here's the storyline and where we find ourselves. Jesus is God, came into history and lived without sin. He died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower us to continue his ministry. This includes, we saw this last week, the healing of a man lame from birth. The story was Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray. It was three o'clock in the afternoon. And they come upon this man who has been unable to walk his entire life and he's begging. He's trying to make enough money just to make ends meet. And they go up to him and they tell him, look, we don't have silver or gold, but what we do have, we give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, be healed. (laughs) And this guy is instantly healed. He jumps up, dances, rejoices, walks into the temple to praise God. And the question then is, what next? What happens after Jesus, who is alive and well in heaven, ruling and reigning, What happens when he shows up from heaven to heal? We're going to look at what happens in the wake of what Jesus does. So our story goes back to Acts chapter 3. While the man held on to Peter and John. Now, I don't know about you. I kind of get a funny picture of this. I mean, there's three grown men and one of them is hanging on to the other two. Well, because he just got healed and he's probably thinking, hey, If there's a relapse, I know I want to be next to them. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished. Yeah, wouldn't you be astonished? Someone lame from birth, all of a sudden, now shows up on Dancing with the Stars. (laughs) All the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, now Peter's going to stand up and preach. You know why? Because it's always a good time for a sermon. (laughs) Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer, remember the story of Barabbas, be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that the Messiah must suffer. So Peter's been telling them all of this that had been 
foretold, prophesied, predicted in the Old Testament, and Jesus fulfilled it all. So what now? Repent, then, he tells them, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said... The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Peter continues, indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you, he's telling them, are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. God had said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he's talking about Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. A man is healed, a crowd gathers, Peter preaches. That's what happens. So a couple of things to note from the outset. Number one it exposes who gets the gladness, who gets the gratitude, who gets the glory. So when something happens by God's grace, the person who receives that grace, in this case, the healed man, gets the gladness. I mean, his heart is exploding. And then the person who served them gets the gratitude, in this case, Peter and John. But only Jesus gets the glory. You see, this is how that works. So on this occasion, there was a man who was lame from birth. He was healed. The Bible says that he was leaping, celebrating, praising God. We saw that last week. So he gets the gladness because he's healed. Peter and John, it would be fine for them to get the gratitude. Thank you for praying for me. Thank you for talking to me. I think some of us need to know that it's okay for you to be grateful for someone. This doesn't disrespect the Lord. God works through people. So it's okay to give gratitude for what he does. So it's okay to be grateful to them and grateful for them. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for serving me. Thank you for being generous to me. Thank you for being patient with me. Thank you for praying for me. The gratitude goes to the servants. But ultimately, the glory belongs to Jesus alone. That's what Peter demonstrates. Because the crowd rushes in and these two disciples hear them say, wow, these guys have the gift of healing. Well, in a day where a lot of people are poor and they don't have good medical coverage, and Peter and John are healing without a deductible or a copay, yeah, there's pretty special in their eyes. And as everyone is looking at Peter and John, Peter says, whoa, 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 don't think that we healed this man by our own power, by our own piety. Jesus healed him. Jesus is alive and well, ruling and reigning from his heavenly throne, and he can involve himself in anyone's life at any moment, however he chooses. Jesus healed, not us. 
So the glory goes to Jesus. And so Peter gets up and he stands in front of a section of the temple to preach and proclaim the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. And he does so to people who are murderers. He says, you killed Jesus. You handed him over. You preferred that murderer Barabbas to the God-man Jesus. You. You did this. He gets pretty personal. How many of you, if you're addressing a group of murderers, would talk about something other than their murder, right? Because they may think, well, you're the next one. So Peter's being very courageous. And the Holy Spirit wants every one of us to be courageous. He will empower us to have the courage to talk about Jesus. And so as Peter gets up, what's an amazing sermon highlights several things regarding Jesus. And I want to point out six things that he talks about regarding Jesus, but ultimately it's all about him. The first thing that Peter tells us about Jesus is that Jesus is the suffering servant. From verse 13, he refers to Jesus as a servant. From verse 18, that he would suffer. Now, those who were from the Jewish background would have been familiar with the Old Testament. And upon hearing what Peter had to say, they would have hearkened back to something that Isaiah had said 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. Isaiah, in this lengthy section between, verse, between chapters 40 and 66, the hero of that entire time, the storyline is of someone called the servant. If you want a mind-blowing experience, go home and read Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. It is all promising, predicting, forecasting, foreshadowing, predicting, prophesying. If I haven't already used those words, <laughs> the coming of Jesus, his life, death, burial, resurrection, and salvation. And it's a portion of scripture, Isaiah 52 and 53, that are never read in Jewish worship. Think about that. Isaiah 52 and 53 are skipped over in Jewish worship. Because when somebody reads Isaiah 52 and 53, people of Jewish faith say, why are you reading something to me from the New Testament? Why are you telling me about Jesus? You know I don't believe in him. Isaiah 52 and 53 are pointing to Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And so it's right in the middle of this larger section between chapters 40 and 66 about the servant, that God sends a servant. It takes a while. 700 years, already said. But then Jesus shows up. And he says things like, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus' service to us includes his death for us. Let me tell you that one of the ways we know that the God of the Bible is not a human construct is because other religions also have a concept of a God, but that God exists solely to be served. That their God is simply a projection of, of us, 
who we are, the way we are. So you and I live in a world where most of us, perhaps all of us, would rather have servants than be servants, right? Look, the goal of a company, if you're working in a company, is to get as high up to hand off as many responsibilities as possible so that other people will do those certain things that you don't like to do. The goal is to make enough money to employ people to serve you so that you don't have to do certain things. And people who can't afford any of that go to Starbucks and yell at their barista because it makes them feel good. Hey, I finally got somebody I can run over, give orders to, make demands of. Very few of us would not like this concept of us, of someone serving us, of someone taking orders from us, someone obeying us, someone being under us. We don't look forward to being a servant, right? Like you can't get a minor in college on being a humble servant. Nobody's going to take that course of study. And Jesus comes as a humble servant. He leaves glory and comes in humility. He leaves luxury and comes into poverty. He leaves a place where angels serve him so that he can serve his enemies. That's Jesus. He comes to serve. Next, Peter goes on to say that Jesus is the holy and righteous one, exactly the way he put it in verse 14. And this is controversial just like practically everything else about the Christian faith. But here it is. We live in a day where there is no conflict, no controversy, if Jesus is one among of the many good teachers, one among many good examples, one among many great leaders. You know, the proverbial Mount Rushmore. There's Jesus, Muhammad, Gandhi, Mother Teresa. And Jesus is one of those greats. But what does Peter say? He's the holy and righteous. How many? One. There's none like Jesus. There's none equal to Jesus. There's none alongside of Jesus. There's none in addition to Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's only Jesus. It's always Jesus unto a category to himself. Please do not put Jesus in the category with the rest of humanity. He's in an entirely different category. He's not just a good man. He's the God man. You see, there are two categories. There's Jesus and there's everybody else. He alone is holy and righteous. Now I have good news for you. You don't have to be holy. You don't have to be righteous. In fact, you can't be holy. You can't be righteous. Some of you say, well, I'll just try real hard. Well, it's already too late. You've already been made unholy and unrighteous by your sin. So even if you never sin again from this day forward, which isn't possible, so you may think that, well, that's what I'm going to do. Well, that's pride. That's the worst sin of all. So I got you there too. You're hemmed in. Here's the truth. Jesus is our holiness. Jesus is our righteousness. And Jesus is our report card. (laughs) 
we will stand before the Father. And he may say, explain your holiness. And you say, his name is Jesus. So where's your righteousness? And you say, it's right there with Jesus. He goes to the cross and he takes on our unholiness. And he takes on our unrighteousness. And he trades places with us to serve us, to give us his holiness, to give us his righteousness. And here's the good news. We don't have to pay God back. We don't need to do what other religions always encourage us, and that is pull it together so that God can love you. Instead, it's God does love you, and he's going to help you pull it together. It's different because we work from Jesus' righteousness not for our own righteousness. We work from Jesus' holiness, not for our own holiness. Number three, Peter goes on to say, verse 15, that Jesus is the author of life raised from the dead. The God of the Bible is the living God, eternally existent, the creator of all that is created And that God brings creation into life because he is the living God. And then we foolishly rebel against God, and in choosing sin, we choose death. Now, the living God, the author of life, he's so gracious to us, so patient with us, that he determines he's going to enter creation. The creator enters creation. that he would humble himself and walk among us, that he would bring us life. And what do we do to him? We kill him. We murder the author of life. It's an amazing revelation at the cross of Jesus, not only how good he is, but just how evil humanity is, how evil our hearts are. That God would make us live and we would choose death. That God would come and bring us life and we kill him. That says a lot about us. But then Jesus raised us from the dead. You know why? Because he's the author of life and death cannot hold him. And he invites us to life in him. Spiritual life now where you will be forgiven and reconciled to God. And then eternal life, resurrected from the dead, physical, actual, eternal life, patterned after his own bodily resurrection. He's the author of life. And let me say this very clearly. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, you're spiritually dead. And then you will physically die and you will eternally die, suffering forever because there is no life, physical, spiritual, eternal, no life apart from the author of life. That's why we're all in the process of dying. You know what happens if you unplug your phone, your iPad, your laptop from its power source? It's not dead, but it's dying. And apart from being connected to the source of its power, uh, source of its life, it will die and remain dead. That's how we are spiritually. We're dying in the process of becoming dead. Now, we all will die. 
And apart from a connection to the author of life, all we will ever know is death, spiritual death that culminates in physical death that results in eternal death. But the good news is Jesus is the author of life. Peter's fourth point is that Jesus is the object of our faith. He literally says it this way in verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus. Now, to be fair, other religions do recognize that we all have some sort of problem and they offer some sort of solution, but they differ on that solution. For instance, in Buddhism, you save yourself by ceasing all desires. Whatever you desire, just stop it. Yeah, good luck with that, huh? In Confucianism, you save yourself through education, reflection, and moral living. In Hinduism, you save yourself by detaching from your separated ego and living in unity with the divine. I wonder if the Hindus know what that means because I surely don't. In Islam, you save yourself by living life of good deeds and following certain rituals. In Orthodox Judaism, you save yourself through repentance and prayer and working hard at obeying God's laws. In New Age or New Spirituality, you see yourself, you save yourself by seeing yourself as part of the divine and so seeking to live in harmony as part of one big whole. So there are a variety of solutions, but there's one constant. What's the object of one's faith in all of those different paths? You are. You save yourself. You learn something, you do something, you experience something, but ultimately you are the object of your faith. You save yourselves. So religion comes along and says, Here's what you do to save yourself. Christianity comes along and says, it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. It's not about you saving yourself. It's about you being saved by a Savior. Now, this will be difficult for some of you because you have family, friends, neighbors, coworkers who adhere to other spiritualities, other religions, and you say, look, I know some people, they're very devout, very moral, very spiritual, very committed. They're actually nice people, a lot nicer than some Christians I know, all of which may be true. Their faith may be sincere, but the object of their faith cannot save I'll give you an illustration. Let's say you're a bad swimmer and you're out swimming and it's not going well. So you yell at someone, throw me the anchor. Throw me the anchor. Because you have sincere faith in the anchor. You have devout faith in the anchor. You have a deep commitment to the belief that the anchor will save you. They throw you the anchor. And in an act of faith, you grab it and you hold on to it with this deep, devoted, sincere, religious type commitment. How's it going to go? You're going to sink because faith doesn't save you. The object of your faith saves you. And if you pick the wrong object, you're not saved. It's like that. So Luke, the author of the book of Acts, says, 
by faith in the name of Jesus, that Jesus alone is our Savior. So let me ask you, have you received Jesus? Have you responded to Jesus? Is your faith in his name? Fifth, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Some of you know this because we've talked about it before. But at the time that the Bible was originally written, about 25% of it was prophetic in nature. Meaning, God who knows the future tells in advance what's going to happen in great detail. And most of that prophecy surrounds the person and work of Jesus. It's the Old Testament anticipating the coming of Jesus. Now, I can't get into all of them with you because there's too many. But I'll give you some examples. In Genesis 3, the prophecy is given by God that Jesus would come as a male son born of a woman. In Isaiah 7, that his mom would be a virgin. Well, that's kind of narrowing the list of candidates, isn't it? Isaiah 9, that he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. All right, you continue forward. The Bible says in later prophets that he would be born in Bethlehem. And that after his birth, he would come to his temple, which was destroyed in 70 AD. So whenever this person was to come, it had to be before 70 AD. So all these prophecies, the reason why I can't share all of them with you, because in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies that relate to Jesus fulfilling them. They all point to the coming of Jesus in painstaking detail. Because this is the book that God wrote. And he knows the future. And he brings it to pass. And Peter is saying to the crowd, In your day he came. All the prophets were fulfilled by him. And you killed him. But he rose from the dead. Fulfilling another prophecy in a place like Isaiah 52 and 53, that he would be crucified, he would be pierced for our transgressions, he would be buried with the rich, but that he would see the light of life and his soul would be satisfied, that he would be raised from the dead. All of that that was predicted in the Old Testament all gets fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the truth is, the majority of these prophecies about Jesus were already fulfilled in his first coming. But there's still some that we will anticipate he'll fulfill in his second coming. We're just not there yet. He hasn't come a second time. We've not had the resurrection of the dead. We've not yet had the judgment of the living and the dead. So the majority of the prophecies related to Jesus' first coming But we now live in the time between the times where we are waiting, we're yearning, we're anticipating his second coming. But all this to say, Jesus fulfills all of the prophecy. And number six, Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. The name Jesus means God saves. So back to my earlier point, we don't save ourselves. God saves. Christ is actually a title. It's not his last name. It means anointed one. 
Christ in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew. He's the unique one, the special one, the chosen one. He's the Christ, the Messiah. Inferred in this is the concept of Savior, one who is chosen to come and make a difference and to save a people and to bring a kingdom into existence. And here's why that's important. You and I have a deep longing for a Messiah. We do. Someone who is like us but better, who comes to save us to make it all better. If you don't believe me, let me give you some examples. So every election year, it's Messiah time. Here's the narrative, just change the candidate's name, but the narrative is this. Things are really bad. It feels like hell. We want to be in heaven. So vote for the Messiah. He'll come and save you. He's like you, but better than you. He will put down your enemies, whoever they are, and he'll come and give a kingdom of peace and take care of us. So vote for the Messiah. We vote for him every time. Does it work? No. That's why we keep having elections. And it's going to be that way until Jesus comes back. And we won't need any more elections because he will be king and we don't have to vote. This happens in business. Your company is tanking. You know what that is? We need a Messiah. We need a new CEO who's going to save us and fix all our problems. And he's going to usher in a a, a time of peace and prosperity and, and turn everything around. It happens with sports teams all the time. The Florida Gators need a Messiah. Have you seen any of the Superman movies? Think about it. It's a kingdom far away. A royal father sends a -a one-of-a-kind son, who's the only begotten son, born of basically a miracle. A son he loves with his whole heart, sends him to earth as the Messiah to reconcile this out-of-the-world kingdom with earth, the people on earth, by vanquishing evil. But before that, He needs to be raised by a rural peasant couple. And then this single man who has superhuman powers, but he doesn't really go public with him until he's around 30. Where have we heard this? I, I know I've heard this story somewhere before. Sure sounds familiar, doesn't it? Do you know the backstory? The Superman narrative, this myth, was created by a couple of Jewish friends who didn't know Jesus, who didn't believe in the New Testament. But their point was, well, we read the Old Testament. We started thinking, hypothetically, someday, what if there were a Messiah? What might he be like? I'm like, hey, just keep reading the book. It gets better. No cape, no unitard, thank you, Jesus. We already know the story. There's a deep longing in the human soul that wants a Messiah so deep that we keep making superhero movies and stories where they're like us but better than us and they come to save us and give us a kingdom. 
Jesus is our Messiah. He's the Christ. So we don't have myths. We have a Messiah. We don't have a false kingdom. We have the real kingdom. Now, this is a word for all of us. But especially to those who say, okay, I hear all of this. So what do I do now? One more time, let's look at verse 19. Repent then, Peter tells them, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. What he says is this, if you repent, God forgives your sin. That, that is all the things for which you failed. So all your failures, all your faults, all your flaws, Jesus takes all of that and makes you clean. And you have allowed Jesus to do that, then you're a Christian. You can always be forgiven. You just constantly need to repent. So let me linger on this just a few moments. Christians and non-Christians, particularly in our current moral, spiritual, cultural climate. There's a list of issues that we disagree on, but it's actually deeper than that because a non-Christian mostly has this assumption to begin with. I'm basically a good person. I don't need to change who I am. Maybe I need to improve just a little bit, but I'm basically a good person and what I desire are good things. So my morality is a good thing. My sexuality is a good thing. My spirituality is a good thing. So out of me will come good desires, good actions, good thoughts. And I just need to be loved. I need to be accepted. I need to be approved so I can be the good person that I am. And if you tell me that I'm wrong, that's hateful. If you think I need to change, that's intolerant. And if you would say that some of what I think, some of what I believe, some of how I behave is against God's will, well, that's unloving. As Christians, we believe that the highest authority is God, not us. And how we get to know God is through the timeless scriptures, not our timely preferences. We believe that who we are needs to change at the deepest level because what we are at our natural state is sinful. Because sin has infected and affected everyone and everything. And the Bible summarizes this need to change in one word, repentance. And it's actually very loving. It's one of the most loving things that can happen. The God who made us, we rebelled against him and, and chose death. God then comes to us in Jesus Christ. He died in our place for our sins. Then he rose from death and he says to us, I will forgive you. I will embrace you. I will change you. That's incredibly loving. Because otherwise, we're living in a path of God's wrath. And Jesus doesn't want us in that path of death and destruction and danger. It's an act of love. 
That's what the call to repentance is. It's an invitation to get out of the path of the wrath of God and let Jesus embrace you in his love. And here's the truth about the love of Jesus. Jesus' love takes you as you are but refuses to allow you to remain that way. So you come to Jesus as you are. But coming to Jesus means you're acknowledging that you need to change, and that's what repentance is. And then he gives us this great promise for those who repent. For those who repent, we just saw it in that last verse, God sends what? Refreshing. God wants you to be refreshed. Doesn't that sound amazing? Have you repented and trusted in Jesus? Maybe today will be the first time that you say, I want to do that now. I want to repent of my sin and I want to trust in Jesus. For others of you, maybe you did that a long time ago. And what you're wanting to say today is, I want to recommit my life to Jesus. So much has gone on in my life recently that I just want to publicly declare that I need to make room for him again. If either of those are where you are right now, I invite you to come forward and let us pray for you and let us pray over you. Maybe this is the first time for you. You say, all right. I want to give Jesus my sin. And I want to trust in him as my Savior. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.